Hey everybody, Sam Ellinger here, sports columnist with the Kansas City Star. I'm grateful for you listening to the 73rd episode of the Mellinger Minutes for Your Ears podcast. This week, we're going to be worth your time with the biggest point going right now about the Chiefs. And no, it's not about Daniel Swanson, although there is a column on the website right now as we speak uh, that I hope you check out. The questions, uh, broad strokes about Andy Reid's potential trajectory here, uh, whether the coaching on the defensive side is going stale, the future of the Royals pitching and a journalism question with the fallout from Adam Schefter using Bruce Allen as Mr. Editor. Uh, the third section is a deep dive into the Royals exploration of a downtown ballpark, which in turn is a tease to a really deep dive into the Royals exploration of a downtown ballpark. I'll, I'll explain that uh, there in the third section. So hold on to me, guys. Um, I'm not a bragger. I hope you know that. I think you know that. But we've turned out a pretty damn good podcast here with your help. Um, OK, let's get started. And. Look, the Chiefs schedule was always going to be one of the more interesting that they've had in recent memory. Just like incredibly front loaded with all of the best AFC contenders and then soft for a few weeks and then, you know, another sort of murderer's row. And I think we can safely say they failed the initial test, right? Uh, They beat the Browns at home with the last minute interception and they beat the Eagles on the road uh, in a weird game, including three Eagles touchdowns called back on penalties. You know, look. Chiefs fans can yell all they want about, you know, being one fumble away from beating the Ravens on the road. And that's true. Um, you know, a plate or two away from beating the the Chargers. And that might be true. Um, but those losses happen. Right. And, and getting the doors just blown off. Uh, by the Bills just makes the whole thing a moot point. So, look, NFL power rankings are dumb, but ESPN's has the Chiefs 10th, uh, which is actually up from 11th before they got their doors blown off by the Bills, which I don't understand. But anyway, either way, I would argue that's a little high, but um, that's still f- behind four teams in the AFC. And 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 they're behind eight in the, in the actual standings, which also matters. So anyway, now comes a chance for the Chiefs to sort of like get right. You know what I mean? Or or if not get right, then at least get a little bit of confidence because Washington's defense stinks out loud. They've got a good defensive front, but look, they stink out loud. So the, the Chiefs should be able to score some points here. And, uh, and, and Washington's offense is okay, but they're not set up in a way that should really test the Chiefs' weaknesses. They just they don't have that tight end that can put a lot of stress on you. I, I, I don't know. This should be a game that that they win. You know what I mean? And then after that, you get the Titans. And look, the Titans do have some ways to stress the Chiefs, you know, with Derrick Henry and some receivers who can get downfield. But that really, that that team kind of has a look of a nine and eight or so. You know what I mean? And then the Giants after that, um, who I actually thought had a chance to surprise some people this season, but um, they just stink. So anyway, my, my point here is that if done right, if the Chiefs use this time productively, there's a path here to be really good, um, you know, or at least to use this part of the schedule to their advantage. Um, you know, look, this is taking the optimistic point of view here. Um, I'll just say that up front. But if if the first five games exposed the Chiefs' weaknesses, and here I'm thinking mostly about uh, the offense being careless, um, the defense being unable to get a consistent pass rush or coverage, uh, and the whole operation just looking really sloppy. So if, if those are the weaknesses that we see, you know, like in bright lights right now, then these next three weeks can serve as a sort of reset, 
you know, um, as a way to work on those. And then those fixes or improvements get tested in the three weeks after this because then now now we're getting some some consistently good opponents. The, the the Packers in week nine, the Raiders on the road for week ten. Maybe the Raiders are a mess now. Who knows? Uh, but still, they're over five hundred and it's a road game, division, all that stuff. And then the Cowboys in week eleven. So then comes a Chiefs bye. And you know that Andy Reid and the Chiefs coaches have a really good history of using that buy particularly pro- productively. So if we're looking at like a seven and four or so team coming out of the buy with, you know, wins in five of six games, I just think all of a sudden, um, well, okay, not all of a sudden, right? Because we're talking six weeks from now, but you get the point. If, if all that happens, then the discussion around this team is just drastically different. And I think all of this is possible. I'm not like shooting for the stars here. And if that happens, I think now you'd be talking about a team that, you know, probably still a long shot at the top seed or maybe even in the division. But, you know, that's a team that can be nobody's choice to play against in the playoffs. You know what I mean? And and they can get there. You know, like this team is flawed. Uh, you know, it's, it's more flawed than any Chiefs team since at least 2018. And and I would argue longer because at least that 2018 defense, they they could rush the passer, you know, and I just I don't know what this defense does well. Uh, but anyway, if the defensive coaches can figure out a way to get some sort of pass rush out of, you know, they got one stud with Chris Jones and then scheme around him and, and, and bother the quarterback a little bit, then I, I think the defense can get a little bit closer to average. And at that point, they're playing with a lot of leads and an offensive line that could block and a quarterback and skill group that will start getting some swagger back. So, look, these are a lot of dominoes that need to fall. I see that. I know that. Um, but I still I don't think any of this is unrealistic, you know. And but I guess my point here today is that the way this team looks after a really terrible start can change significantly in the next three weeks. But the trick is that's got to start on Sunday. You know, because this game, it should, this should not be a big game, right? But it is because of, you know, the hole that the Chiefs have dug for themselves. So, look, if they don't beat Washington going away on Sunday, then, you know, I don't know. Um, <laughs> next week, maybe I even let you guys cuss in the questions next week because uh, the, 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 the fixes just have to start now. You know what I mean? So, okay, guys, uh, before we move on to the rest of the show, here comes the spiel. Um, I've got three asks. The first, uh, please support us. Uh, give the Sports Pass a try. dollar a month for the first three months or $30 for the year. Just reach out to me on Twitter, Facebook, email, whatever, and I'll send the links to you. I love, it seems like every week um, there's there's some people that listen to this show and, and, and reach out for those links. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Keep them coming. Um, okay, the second, please rate and review us. Uh, we appreciate all the love you've given us already. I see you. Thank you. Um, all the five-star ratings is awesome. But I'm just saying, if you haven't already done that, um, if you haven't already given us a rating and review, please do it. Just really helps us get the word out. Uh, third thing, um, if you want to participate in next week's show, and I hope you do, please call 816-234-4365. Leave your first name, where you're calling from, and almost literally any question. Put your number in your phone. Call anytime, 816-234-4365, 816-234-4365. guys, I appreciate you. Um, quick break, and then we're back with the questions. Sam, this is Paul calling from Portland, Oregon. Is there a disconnect between the front office and the defensive coordinator? NFL teams cannot succeed if their second-round draft picks cannot get on the field. Is it time for Brett Veach and Steve Spagnola to have a come-to-Jesus meeting? Thanks a lot. Keep up the good work. Love the show. 
Okay, so I've heard this question a few times, um, which, to be honest, surprises me. Um, but because I've heard it a few times, um, let's let's go ahead and answer it here. Like, I get that if, and and guys, this is a really big if, um, but I, if this is the beginning of the end for this group's success, then there will be, you know, some, you know, kind of meta, I guess, similarities between Andy's time in Philly and his time here. But I also want to point out that these similarities, I mean, we're talking big stretches of imagination at best. Um, and look, like there's obvious differences too, right? Like that Reed won a Super Bowl here and and that never happened in, in Philadelphia. He's got a much better quarterback here too. You know, like, like let's just be real about that. That 2012 team in Philadelphia, that was 32-year-old Michael Vick. Um, who after that season, you guys, he only started 12 more games for three different teams. Um, Patrick Mahomes is 26 <laughs> and, you know, he's, he's in the prime. So, uh, there's also some subtle differences, you know, like Reed had basically, and he's talked about this and, and people around him have talked about it too. Like he basically like had overextended himself in Philadelphia with, you know, power over personnel and had sort of, you know, gone haywire on that part of the gig with, you know, some free agent signings that I'm sure felt good in the moment, you know, but proved to be a bad idea. So, um, you know, e- even if we get beyond the overreaction to the start of one season after two Super Bowls. Um, I hope we don't lose sight that Reed is just, he isn't a objectively terrific coach. Like this is a hall of famer if he decided to quit yesterday and he's had three losing seasons out of 22, you guys. And, and one was his first year taking over a team that had gone three and 13. And another was when his starting quarterback missed half the season and he tried to make do with Mike McMahon. So this guy, Andy Reid, is as solid as they come. He's not above criticism, and we can knock him for the defense and, and anything else. And there's a column in the paper right now that's pretty critical of the Chiefs. But I, I just think to start feeling like it's time to pull the plug, and I'm not saying Paul is saying that here, um, but there's some wild stuff out there. I, I just think that if a group that's been to and won a franchise's first championship in a half century – if that group can't get a little benefit of the doubt after five games the year after a Super Bowl, then I I don't know. I'm just not sure what we're doing here. You know what I mean? I mean, look, like the NFL is hard and things change quickly. And maybe what Paul is talking about here is the reality we're about to see. But, um, you know, I'll take the over on that, I guess, is what I'm saying. So, um, OK, another Chiefs question here. And um, I told you the team's not above criticism. Uh, so here we go. Hey, Sam, this is Rob Bissart from Hendersonville. Just have a quick question. Um, after seeing this latest performance, it kind of starts beg- it's begging the question, when does a coach's messaging get old or does it resonate or, more infor- importantly, maybe fall short of, of bringing on effective change? Um, I can't help but think that, you know, Andy Reid is beloved in the locker room. Everybody likes him. You know, there's no – Everybody loves him in, in so many ways, but then yet again, it seems like some of the standard issues of, of protecting the football, uh, playing as a team, uh, improving in certain certain basic areas that you expect from the Chiefs um, are not happening. And I'm not sure, you know, if the health care, health problems that you might not be aware of. I hate to say all that, even going back all the way back to what happened prior to uh, the Super Bowl with his son is creating such a distraction that maybe his voice and the voices of his coaches are not uh, having the input impact that you expect uh, within the team to effectively uh, 
uh, do a course correction, especially mid-year. I know that sounds like a, a hot take and, more importantly, a panic situation, but you would think after four games, protecting the ball and certain other things that we're, we're seeing would get resolved. Um, but anyway, thank you for your time. Maybe this will make your podcast, and more importantly, you'll be able to have some insight to uh, uh, what what this question might mean. So, yeah, I mean, absolutely, 100% that can happen, you know. Um, everybody makes Bob Sutton jokes now, but there was a time that his defense was the reason that the Chiefs were winning games. And, you know, we think of Andy Reid as this offensive innovator, and he is. But would you believe that it wasn't until Reid's fifth season here, uh, 2017, that the offense ranked higher in points than the defense? Like, that's a that's a thing that happened. Um, but I do think that it had become pretty obvious by then that Bob Sutton's messaging or scheme had just gone stale. So Reed probably waited a year too long to make a switch at defensive coordinator, um, you know, because the, the defense held Mahomes back in that 2018 MVP season. But I also don't think it's a small thing that Reed fired a coach that he'd been with that long and who had helped him have some success when things weren't easy here, you know? So... Look, it's possible that that's where we're at with the defense. Um, I mean, it's possible. I still think this group will claw its way closer to average and then add some personnel in the offseason, uh, especially, you know, with some salary cap management. Um, and I also think it's worth remembering that you don't just, like, have the right to be awesome, like, year after year with all the gravitational pulls toward the mean that exists in the NFL. So um, you're going to hear me mention this a lot, but the – sucky truth is that people with jobs like mine like we just we don't have the same insight into these things that we used to or that i hope we get back to again without you know locker room access so um i don't expect to have the certainty either way on this that i had about midway through 2018 when just little things you notice in the locker room just made it obvious that the defense was shattered you know that trust had eroded that players felt like coaches were not just like you know not just not helping them but there were some players there that felt like they were being put intentionally or not uh, in just the wrong positions, uh, positions to make them look bad. So um, I just don't know that we'll get to that point now without locker room access during the week or after games. But uh, I, I do think that, you know, the things you look for are things like, you know, well, <laughs> well, things like Tyron Matthew throwing his arms in the air after repeated blown assignments, right? Like it's, it's body language on the field and on the sideline and what we hear in press conferences and some of what, um, you know, some of us can get away, uh, can get from people away from those press conferences, you know? And I don't know that there's any coach really, or at least not in professional sports where you don't have like the built-in advantages of a place like, like Duke basketball, right? Um, but there's just not a lot of chance for a coach in professional sports to just be consistently successful forever because you're dealing with grown men who have a limited window to make their money and provide for their family. And, you know, the dynamics and patience and prodding and everything else, it's just, it's just different. Coaches have shorter shelf lives, you know? I still don't think we're there um, on Steve Spagnuolo. I really don't. Um, the guy has finished seventh and tenth in points allowed in his two seasons, and that's that's no small thing for those of you that remember what it was like when he took over. So, um, but I also don't think this is a ridiculous question, you know, um, or something that we're not going to come back to and talk about more. So, um, let's keep at it, right? Um, okay, uh, let's do a Royals question now. This is Joseph. From Las Vegas, Nevada, which of the young pitchers for the Royals will end up being starters and will the rest go to the bullpen? Thank you. 
So this is a great question. And, um, you know, holy smokes, do the Royals have a lot of options here? You know, um, I, I think we're all old enough to not need the disclaimers about, you know, the attrition rate across baseball when, you know, with pitching prospects. But, you know, for the purpose of this question, uh, we're going to look at the eight pitchers, 25 or younger, who started games for the Royals this season. And um, first, like eight is a lot, <laughs> by the way. Um, so anyway, first, uh, we should say that it's likelier than not that all of these guys will get starts again next season. Um, but the two that I tell you I feel the strongest about, uh, Carlos Hernandez and Brad Keller. Um, and really, Keller's kind of cheating. You know, he's been around for a few years now. Um, but after that... Um, I tell you, I really like Daniel Lynch's mix of fastball, slider, and changeup. And um, I know I've always liked Chris Bubich more than some of you, but I really think that changeup can play. And the September disclaimers, you know, they might fit here. This, you know, Kyle Davies, right? But he was terrific in his last six starts, like 2.20 ERA, 549 OPS against. Um, I just think if he can get that curveball where the Royals think he can get to, then they've got a really solid big league starter there. So, um, I'm just going to be honest with you. I don't know much about John Heasley before the season, but um, I was really impressed with like just his presence, his confidence, his energy, um, you know, obviously that curveball. Um, you know, I think his test is going to be with command, but I think we saw some good signs in, in the big leagues. Um, Zerpa is only 21 years old and uh, he started last season in A-ball, so I don't think we should be talking with even a small amount of certainty with this one, but um, he's got a promising history with command and, you know, a good fastball to play off of. So, um, you know, I guess we'll see. <laughs> uh, you could probably tell I've been stalling here. Um, you know, I think these last two are probably the hardest to predict. But, um, you know, look, I think there's times that Brady Singer looks like a potential number one. Um, but without that third pitch, it just really makes his margin for error pretty small. And he's been in kind of a weird spot. And I, th- I think people overlook this sometimes because ideally he had stayed in the minor leagues in 2019, right? Uh, or I'm sorry, in 2020. Just, you know, develop that change up, you know, maybe even a cutter or something. But um, he checks a lot of boxes and he's fully committed and a good teammate and all those things. And the Royals, you know, had a lot of bad luck with arms last season. So, um, you know, it, it makes total sense that in that, you know, sort of chaos, that he didn't trust his changeup during the season, you know, when the bullets are flying. And, you know, if you're facing Jose Abreu with two on and the game in the balance, like it's a pretty terrible time to work on your secondary pitches. You know what I mean? But I I do think his future, whether it's in the bullpen or rotation, I do think that it depends largely on whether he can get a third workable pitch. Um, He's got enough other stuff going for him that a third pitch doesn't have to be dominant. Um, You know, just get something to at least make, the hitters think about. You know what I mean? If he can do that, I think he's a starter. If not, maybe he's not. Um, Okay, the other tough one for me on this is Jackson Coar. And look, I know a lot of you are wanting to throw him overboard. And I get it. You know, he pitched nine times in the big leagues this year, and it was a disaster. Um, You know, he walked 20 and 30 innings and, you know, gave up an OPS over a thousand. I mean, that just, that that can't play, right? Um, But I also look at a guy who was a top 100 prospect coming into the season, and he pitched really well. I mean, he was dominant in the minor leagues. Um, He was the Royals' minor league pitcher of the year, 115 strikeouts and 80 innings. So um, he's got a nice three-pitch mix. 
you know, changeup is his best pitch, uh, a fastball that, you know, sits in the mid nineties and he's got a history of success below the big leagues. So he's got to translate that obviously. Um, and not everybody can do that. And a lot of whether Coar can do that or not will be about how he is mentally, you know, with confidence as much as, you know, whether the stuff will play. So however it happens, um, I think this is a really interesting time to be around the Royals. You know, I mean, this is this is the future that we've been hearing about for a few years now, and it's really starting to come into focus. Um, okay, um, let's do one more question. And uh, for the second week in a row, um, we got something about journalism. Um, all right, let's hit it. Hey, Sam. It's Joel from Kansas City. And the question for this week's pod is, um, is it fair to say that ESPN's attempt to balance entertainment behemoth while maintaining journalistic standards of has failed um, just in light of um, the Adam Schefter thing um, that I'm sure people listening to the podcast will know about by now. Um, I feel like if it had any sort of journalistic standards, there'd be a review of everything he's written and he'd probably be fired at this point. I'd assume that would happen if someone at the star pulled the same thing by getting approval of what to write by the people they're writing about. Um, Want to hear from someone in the industry? Thanks. Bye. So, yeah, I mean, we had a couple questions about this this week. Um, And actually, two people who work in the NFL reached out um, wondering what I thought about all this, too. So um, let's do it. Um, So the reference here, I'm sure you know, but the reference here is about Adam Schefter, uh, the ESPN NFL reporter, Uh, And the leaked emails that showed him sending a completed story to a then team executive for approval before publishing. Um, Another question that that we took about this also brought up Schefter essentially using himself as the source for breaking the news about Aaron Rodgers wanting out of Green Bay, um, which I don't really have a problem with because he was dead right. (laughs) You know, um, he knows a lot of people. So but either way, there's enough here that it's worth a quick conversation. Um, The first point that I would want to make is that situations like this are why it just doesn't mean anything real to say the media, you know, like that's one thing, like that's one conglomerate, one group with one motivation or whatever. Like the same way a cable news anchor is much different than the person, you know, working city hall at your local newspaper. Um, You know, someone like Schefter is much different than the beat writer who covers your favorite team. Um, There's been a lot of piling on with Schefter and look, I get it. Right. Like getting caught like that, um, you know, sending a story for approval. And I know he's being sarcastic, but the part about calling Bruce Allen, Mr. Editor is just embarrassing. Um, You know, the whole thing is just a really bad look. But I I think what people like Schefter do is um, and I don't mean this as an insult. um, I really don't. But it's just only like tangentially about journalism. You know what I mean? Like those jobs, that is a lot of favor trading. That is information swaps. um, And it's sort of like pulling rank. You know, there's just a lot of like kind of weird things that go into, you know, all the news that reporters like Schefter, Ian Rappaport or any of these guys break, you know, and this isn't unique to Schefter or the NFL or to ESPN. You know, the same thing pretty much exists in in, in other sports as well. So, you know, there are certain reporters, you know, for various reasons who become sort of like this clearinghouse or this like sort of preferred way to get information out there. Um, and teams and this absolutely, I mean, this includes coaches, this includes executives, and it, it even includes like team PR departments. Um, they give news to these reporters as part of a sort of cycle that has become part of the bigger machine. 
And it's why you so rarely see news on trades or free agent signings or whatever broken by local reporters. Um, those guys are working, uh, you know, like those men and women, the local beat writers are working their butts off. Um, there's just a lot of like influential people from executives to agents and, you know, even a PR with motivations to push that stuff out to national reporters. Um, and I want to be clear, I don't begrudge the reporters for playing along. Like, um, you know, I hate that the local beat writers, you know, who grind every day at the facilities and with building relationships. I just I I wish that all of that work was better rewarded. Um, I really do. But I also understand why the machine works the way it does. And um, look, I would not want to trade jobs with Schefter or Rappaport, any of those reporters, you know, like um, even if the paycheck would be a hell of a lot bigger. Uh, but I, I just I want to try to explain the problem with what Schefter did, because I've heard from some fans and even from some inside the league who see it as just, you know, trying to be accurate. And but I, I just I, there's a subtle but I think very important difference here that matters deeply to me and many others. And look, a source has the right to control their own words and to approve the accuracy of the parts of a piece that come from them. But they cannot ever have editing privileges over an entire piece. Um, then you know uh, they they can't have editing privileges over what a reporter says and can verify other ways. So it's absolutely okay and even responsible to run back a fact or a number or a quote to make sure that you have that accurate. You know, sometimes somebody tells you something and these conversations can go in different ways and you think it's off the record or you think it's on the record, but you want to make sure that, you know, that there's not a, a misunderstanding here. Like that stuff, that's all fair and that's responsible. But once you give someone the power to basically write a piece for you, like that's no longer honest to your readers. You know what I mean? And, and that's the most important thing. And it also opens the door to allow someone to basically ghostwrite a hit piece on someone else without ever being accountable for it. You know, if you let a source have that kind of power, you're no longer like a reporter or journalist. You know, at some point you're just you're a mouthpiece. You know, you're like the Rufus Dawes or whatever that weird column was that used to run on Chiefs.com back in the day. And I think that at that point, what you've done, you've really you've violated the trust that readers have in you, which for me, that's the worst sin that a journalist can make. Um, you know, and look, I'm not here again. I'm not here to bash Schefter. Um, you know, the email that was from 10 years ago, um, he says it's the only time and I'm willing to believe that, you know what I mean? Like, and because <laughs> I'm willing to believe that because Schefter knows at least two things, right? Like he knows first, he knows that his emails are among the 650,000 in this investigation. And second, somebody with access to those emails has it in for him and is willing to embarrass him. You know, John Gruden absorbed one leak of his emails and, you know, coached a game. But when the second leak came, his career was over. So Schefter has to know that a similar fate could be his if there are worse emails that somebody can find. So, um, look, I, I hope that makes sense about how I see all this, like, journalistically. And, and actually, if we're talking about all these leaks from a journalism standpoint, I find it interesting and noteworthy that all we've seen so far are emails that got a coach who is completely uninvolved with the purpose of the investigation, gone from football, I think probably forever, and then a reporter also who had nothing to do with the intent of the investigation is embarrassed. Like, <laughs> like where's the stuff with the owners? You know, like, I, I think the more leaks that come up, 
the the easier it is to know who's doing the leaking, you know, and who has the power. Because we haven't seen anything damning or even embarrassing about Washington's franchise or any top shelf executive. And, you know, come on, like you don't think there's some stuff in those emails about Colin Kaepernick or something from an owner that would be a really bad look or worse. Uh, But so far, that stuff has been protected because it is in the interest of those with the power of protection. It's pretty devious stuff, man. Um, But also, like, guys, use a Gmail account. (laughs) It's not that hard. Um, okay. Anyway, uh, one more quick break and then we're back with a really strong perspective on the Royals exploration of a downtown ballpark. Okay, guys, uh, let's finish strong. And this podcast is going to drop on Friday, but I'm giving you a heads up right now. Please find a copy of the star print edition, um, or at least get on the website on Sunday. Um, you may have noticed, I hope you've noticed, that the Star is doing even more investigations and deep dives into topics important to Kansas City. And a lot of these projects are anchoring the Sunday paper. And the one this weekend is about the Royals' exploration of a downtown ballpark. And I really hope you check it out. Um, you know, I hope you check it out if you like baseball or if you like the Royals or, you know, even if you just care about Kansas City. Um, which I know is basically all of you. So um, I, I got some time with uh, Royals chairman John Sherman for the piece. And uh, I believe that that's the first time that he's talked about this since the, you know, pretty brief comments at the end of the J.J. Piccolo press conference a month ago. But either way, um, he gives some insight that you haven't heard before, including a little bit about site location, funding, parking, um, how the ballpark might integrate in integrate into downtown and more. Um, It's also perspective from Cliff Illig about what development downtown means beyond baseball uh, and for the lives of regular Kansas Cityans. Uh, There's research into how similar parks or similar projects have worked or impacted other cities. Um, Nikki Lopez gives a player's perspective. Uh, You know, there's information about how Kansas Cityans are taking this initially. I mean, you know, I don't say this very often because I want everything I do to be as good as it can be. So, um, you know, look, let, let me just say that this one took more time and people and effort than most of what you read in our paper um, or anywhere else. So I hope you check it out. So um, anyway, if you've listened to the podcast before, you probably know that now I'm going to play for you some audio from one of the conversations I had for the piece. This is Paul Goldberger. Uh, Paul is a Pulitzer Prize winning architecture critic and the author of a book called Ballpark baseball in the American city. And if that is not qualification to talk on this subject, then I don't know what the heck is, you know? So um, anyway, you probably know that more than half of major league baseball teams have opened new downtown ballparks this century. Uh, That's part of the context here. And one of the first things Paul said to me was that none of those cities regret building new downtown stadiums. You know, a good baseball park is, um, smaller it's more intimate it fits into a city much better and it can really uh connect and be part of the urban fabric i mean i think that's the the, the, we've seen that work amazingly well in uh in san francisco in cleveland in denver uh in in so many cities in the last uh few years and i don't you know know any city that that regrets having made move downtown look one of the points to emphasize here is that a ballpark can't make a downtown alone you know a a a ballpark alone it's just it's not like you can drop a ballpark wherever you want and assume that there's going to be you know massive business around it right like 
<laughs> Truman Sports Complex might actually be the best example here to prove the point, right? Um, you know, millions of people go to events there every year, but it's just not in a place where people are willing to go for other businesses, right? So, um, okay, so here's Paul expanding on that point a little bit. It's about integration and about there being enough else there to, uh, to, to so that they can kind of reinforce each other. You know, yeah, that's right, right, right. can't do the whole thing by itself. But Kansas City um, is in an ideal situation because it's got a pretty strong downtown that has been getting stronger in recent years with a lot of, you know, a lot of renewal, a lot of restoring of older buildings, uh, a lot of development. Um, and so, you know, there's no longer a sense as there used to be that, uh, everything new and significant and meaningful had to be somewhere out of downtown. So we should be clear here. Uh, Paul was not talking there about, is it worth the public money that is or is not involved in any of those projects? Um, that's not to say that these projects aren't worth the tax money. Uh, I'm just saying that's a different conversation and one that's personal and one that like, you know, let's just be honest, like somebody from the New York Times probably isn't in as good a position to talk to on as, you know, people here in Kansas City. So that will be the challenge of this project, right? Like not just the tax money, but there's this other element here where, you know, when the Reds and the Mariners and Giants and Padres and Twins and Astros, like those teams were playing in horrific multi-purpose stadiums. So the question there was not whether they'd build a new stadium, but rather what that new stadium would be and where it would be. So, you know, the Royals have a perfectly fine stadium. Like Kauffman's great. You know, you can't find anybody with a bad word to say about it other than location. Um, so anyway, here's Paul expanding on that point a bit. There's no question that, that Kansas City has a unique situation because it is not talking about replacing a building. Let me, let me rephrase that. Kansas City is not talking about building um, a downtown ballpark as a replacement for a horrible concrete donut built for football and baseball that never worked perfectly very well for either one right. that everyone hates, which was the case in San Francisco, the case in Pittsburgh, the case in Minneapolis, the case in Seattle, and so forth and so on. Um, it's absolutely right that, that Kansas City has been better all along. And you're talking about something, fixing something that was arguably either not broken or less broken than most other cities. Mm -hmm. I agree completely with you. Okay, so we'll do one more clip from Paul. And... Uh, here, I think he's getting a little further to the heart of what we're talking about, which is not so much about what the Royals would be leaving with Kauffman Stadium, because I'm sure a new ballpark would have fountains and a crown and all that, um, but it would have a lot more too, right? Um, so here's an architect's and, and a baseball fan's view of what the Royals would be, what they would be going toward with a downtown stadium rather than what they're going away from. Um, okay, here's Paul. When you sit there, you know, do you totally feel that you're uniquely in Kansas City? Well, maybe a little bit because of the fountains and stuff, but um, uh, I, I think it's more the opportunity to have it integrated with uh, other things that are going on downtown, including both work and working and living, because yeah. now more and people are living downtown, uh -huh. more people are working downtown. 
the sense that we solve every problem by moving to the suburbs is no longer part of our culture and society. And always we've begun to get away from that. And so, um, but yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll say it again because I think it's an important point. It's a tougher call in Kansas City than in most cities because you don't have some ugly concrete monster that everyone can't wait to be liberated from. Yeah. And so, um, so the, the great advantage of downtown is really making the ballpark not an island that you, you know, this isolated thing that you drive to, but, uh, part of a much more integrated urban fabric. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that's a really good thing, but I agree that the, um, the judgment call is harder in Kansas City where you actually have something very nice that you'd be giving up to get it. So, look, you guys know where I stand, right? Um, I think the idea of a downtown ballpark is awesome, and I've felt this way for years. And I also think it's too early in the game here to be taking stands that we're not willing to shift away from if the information changes. Um, stands on either side, right? Because we don't know the funding um, or what it would look like or the location. Um, we don't know the difference in public funding required to build a downtown ballpark um, versus the public funding required to renovate Kaufman again, you know, which is what would happen uh, when the leases expire if, if the Royals don't move. So... That's a lot of information, um, you know, certainly more than 50% of, of what we need to make these decisions. So, um, you know, really what we're doing right now is having more of a, a, a theoretical conversation about something that could fundamentally change Kansas City. Um, you know, there's reasonable arguments to be made on both sides. Um, but I got to say, like one thing I keep coming back to, one thing I keep thinking about is that I hope that the forward thinking, like the the innovation involved in the Truman Sports Complex 50 years ago, I hope that that's not what holds us back from having the best next 50 years. You know what I mean? Um, I hope that's not where we land. So um, anyway, okay, guys, that's the show. Uh, Thanks to everybody who called in, uh, even those we couldn't get to. Thanks to Monty Davis for putting this all together. And as always, the biggest thanks to you for joining and letting us be a small party life. Um, Okay, have a great weekend. Be kind.